Hollywood is like a one-night stand, unless one is careful. Merle Oberon Chapter 19 A film set is a constantly shifting sea. It's usually crowded, concentrated, controlled, chaos, until it's not. The not, those lulls, are very deceptive. You might see a large number of crew members at the craft service table, the lead actor sitting down for a game of chess with the prop man, or the grips and electricians standing idle. Always an indication of trouble. Every second of a shooting day costs money. Every second that isn't accounted for or active can grow exponentially. Slow production, accrue costs and fees and union penalties. If you see the first AD, the oft-harried drill instructor of the studio floor, with nothing to do, no actors to corral, no PAs to bark at, no throngs of technicians to hush, well, if you see him kicking back, feet up, inking in a crossword puzzle, you can pretty much guess your stately ship of cinema craft is about to slam into an iceberg. My job required steering the vessel away from icebergs and to make sure that everyone else involved was working toward that end as well. Sometimes the iceberg came in the shape of a person, or, well, not a person precisely, but something much worse, a studio executive. Usually a high echelon studio executive, earning seven figures and putting in eight hours a day in a cushy office, deigning to appear on set, where most earned five to six figures and put in 12 to 16 hours a day on a soundstage or a very distant location, if they appeared, it signaled doom. My sonar started pinging the minute James Ellis pulled Cooper Daniels aside from his first camera setup after lunch. I had a vision of the news of the impending collision flaring up and over Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and every phone line in town. I knew from experience that his appearance was a piece of corporate show intended to make him look good with Bob Brown, justify his inflated salary, demonstrate the power of the studio, and throw a monkey wrench into filming, eventually costing untold hundreds of thousands that would be hidden and juggled to make it look like his meddling was a cost-saving benefit to the company. Filmmaking as a shell game made me uneasy. Further, I doubted that Cooper had ever learned to be a peach. That is, to smilingly agree to whatever nonsense the suits suggested, wait until they were safely out of sight, and find a way to do all that you had intended anyway. I made my way from Soundstage 11 through an alley between clone buildings housing their own identical stages to the director's trailer. Oh no. They were shouting. Standing on the pavement at the bottom of the stairs, outside the closed door, I caught a I'm not making this movie to give pizza-faced 14-year-olds a boner. Cooper had lost it. As soon as I heard creative differences issuing forth from Mr. Ellis, I was up the stairs in a second and opening the trailer door with a cheery, Hi, am I late? Director and head of production wheeled around to gape. Sorry, I tapped my watch. We lose our actress in half an hour for a photo shoot. I linked my elbow with Cooper's to lead him away. James, I'll be in your office at three. I cocked my head, blinked my eyes, and smiled. 
You always know how to set me straight. Thank you. And I was down the stairs, Cooper right by my side, striding back to the soundstage. Billy, if you weren't so beautiful, you wouldn't get away with half the shit you do. I took a calming breath and detached my arms from Cooper's. Could you, for once, let down your man shield? Man shield? Did you just make that up? You, you don't listen to people. You either lie to them or get up in their faces because you can't be bothered to see things from their perspective. James Ellis spends 50% of his time trying to justify his job with the rest of the bean counters. He has no idea how movies are made, but it's your job to make him think that he's contributing. Could you just do that? Would it hurt you to try to make someone feel good? I don't lie to you, Billy. I have never lied to you. Oh, no? No. I clamped down on the response I felt threatening to erupt like lava from a particularly pissed-off volcano. Well, we really do lose Marissa, I glanced again at my watch, in 25 minutes, so you better get going. You have dinner with me tonight, okay? Nope, I can't. I wanted to shut him up and go away and direct his movie. Cooper stood his ground, looking at me as if I were feminine nonsense incarnate. Go! What's wrong with you? I only ever see you on set. What's wrong with... Did I, me, Billy Taylor, tell you I was a bridesmaid a couple of months ago? This is about that wedding you went to? Yeah, the wedding. It was one of my dearest friend's wedding, Jane's wedding. It was the wedding where all my friends were bridesmaids. Darla, Natalie, Polly. Funny about Polly, she barely made it in time. Did I tell you? I mean, did I tell you about that? Cooper frowned. No. That's what's wrong with me. I don't have time to talk about this now. For a moment, I caught myself gloating. Yeah, that's what I've been saying. At three o'clock, I arrived at Ellis's office with an autographed copy of the Beatles' White Album tucked under my arm and a lot of facile phrases tumbling like petals and gems into our conversation. There was a mention of gratitude, guidance, and appreciation. Perhaps even a damp eye and a bowed head as I handed the album to him, which he received struck by my gift and apparent admiration. He commented he was proud to mentor someone like me, and we parted laughing over artistic temperaments and with smiles all around. On set for the last shot of the day, standing by camera and by Cooper and the first AD, I was seething silently. To obtain my peace offering, I had commandeered half the office staff to make calls. Shep was the one who had a bead on the perfect thing when he located a friend who was a renowned collector and notorious live concert bootlegger who had a cache of rare albums in a storage locker in Culver City. After visiting the locker with the freeway roaring overhead and his pockets full of cash, Shep removed his dusty prize from a plastic sleeve like a magic talisman, saying to me, If this doesn't sway Ellis, nothing will. Thus, Cooper's filming day went long and uninterrupted. Marissa, now back on set and dressed as a waitress, was doing her titivating best to follow direction. 
She made minute changes to her inflection, the way she stood by the table, her pacing. She probably was even changing her heart rate and basal temperature through sheer force of will. But nothing seemed to be pleasing or printable to Cooper. The constant refrain from the first AD to the exhausted actress and crew was, We're gone again. So they continued hour after hour on this one shot as the lot emptied, the sun went down, and their 12-hour shooting day stretched to 16. That meant pushing call so the actors got their turnaround, shuffling the schedule, and dealing with an increasingly grumpy, hungry, tired workforce. I whispered to the first AD, who whispered to Cooper, and then they were done for the day. I felt a hand on my shoulder and heard these words in my ear, walk with me. I followed Cooper off set into the night and the very quiet lot where we walked in the general direction of our cars. It was probably because I had watched Sunset Boulevard over a dozen times, yet this particular time of day at the studio was always the most appealing to me the empty buildings, the bright street lamps, and the stillness. It had a black and white aspect I found dreamlike. I would have been content to stand there and drink it in, if not for the irate director at my side. He touched my elbow and we stopped in the shadows. You're trying to shut me out, Billy. No, what I'm trying to do is get your movie made. Yeah, that's why you never talk to me talk to you. I'm with you 18 hours a day. What more do I have to say? My heart was pounding. I could feel my pulse in my ears. Look, you're mad at me because I slept with Polly. I'm not mad at you because you slept with Polly. I'm mad at you because you lied to me. Hold on. I lied? I lied by omission? It's still a lie. And it's not about Polly. No, it's not. I could feel the breeze against my cheek. It felt like ice against a burn. Now who's lying? Oh, that's a very good question, Mr. Daniels. Had I been able to view Cooper's thoughts as a proverbial movie gypsy reads the future in tea leaves, I would have been astonished by what I saw. He was thinking of an encounter with Mr. Booker on a previous weekend, two, maybe three weeks ago just around the time he and Polly had amicably and easily come to a parting of the sexual ways. He had dropped by the house, freeing Sylvie from her car seat and carrying the contraption with her in it to our front door. He rang the doorbell and was informed by Mr. Booker that I was out with Jake. Cooper had asked Mr. Booker to let me know he dropped by, and the usually circumspect but now very forthright Mr. Booker had said, I don't think I should, sir. You haven't been to visit in such a long time. Granted, you work together, but a visit is rather different. One should be very, very clear in their intentions when dealing with a single parent. I dare say you understand completely what I'm talking about. Mr. Booker peered directly into Cooper's eyes. Your daughter is well? The aloof old Brit was, contrary to type, getting his message across loud and clear. Yes, sir. The most important thing one finds, don't you think? Trivial pleasures, momentary whims, inconsequential meetings, they pale. 
what becomes essential is clarity of heart and mind. One must be very clear, very clear indeed, about Mrs. Taylor especially. Good day, Mr. Daniels. Very kind of you to come by. And with that, he shut the door. I'm not sleeping with Polly anymore. That's not the point. Were you in love with her? Are you in love with her? Billy, you don't have to be in love with someone to sleep with them. I know that. You sure? Because some women I'm in love with, I have never even touched. I interrupted. What? So you deserve a prize? That even... That, that, that might even be more screwed up than sleeping with women that you don't love. I don't need to hear all the little bits of your personal life. I, I just need you to be honest with me. Okay, could you stop disapproving of me for like five seconds? What are you talking about? You, Billy, I'm talking about you. How long have we known each other? Like three, four years? Before I could reply, he steamed ahead. Whatever you think about my sexual partners, which, by the way, is none of your business, at least Polly, who I am not in love with and I am no longer sleeping with, you hear me, is completely on the level. I'm not on the level. I was livid. I'm not. I'm not. Get your sputtering Billy. Spit it out. Don't make me guess. Don't expect me to guess what's on your mind. Here. Does this help? Cooper touched five fingers to the side of my face, and he pressed his other hand against the small of my back. And that was it. Cooper simply held me pressed gently against his chest. It should have been as corny as hell, but it didn't feel that way. I know his innate sense of cool probably rebelled, but he refused to pay it any attention. I puzzled, mystified annoyed him. I, I did know that. Yet it didn't matter. He may have felt like a walking sibboleth, but I compelled his attention. How? Well, we were still in our thirties when the drive to procreate is strong. At any rate, we were alone together and silent. That was the one thing we never were on a chilly June evening with a marine layer creeping inland. I shivered, and Cooper pulled me closer on instinct and muttered into my hair. You smell like roses, God, and you pug the hell out of me. You know that? I nodded, and still he held me tight. I felt my breathing steady, my body warming in his arms. He was feeling something rising of its own accord as he said, You're such a smart aleck pain in the ass completely off the charts. You're the one. You have been since the day I met you, but you, always at arm's length, be straight with me. You be straight with me. He tipped my head up and peered into my eyes. A goddamn nuisance. Yep, I'm the worst person you know. You're sure as hell one of the most difficult people I know. The love impulse in the male most often reveals itself in terms of conflict. Shut up, Billy. Oh, I thought you wanted me to keep talking. God damn it. And he kissed me. It was a kiss like neither of us had experienced before. It was charged and coursing, carnal and enraptured, soaring and deep. 
It was all sorts of things that didn't make any sense, and it had everything to do with what made the most sense of all. So we stood, wrapped together, as the sky grew misty and the last car door slammed somewhere in the distance, and I clued to the fact that Cooper was tumbling into something, possibly me. I tried not to overthink and consciously shoved away the phrase, be careful what you wish for. I sensed the strength in his arms, the beating of his heart, this solitary instance, and I let it be. Cooper hadn't realized how tight he was holding me until I shifted and said, That's quite a grip, mister. Uh, Billy, while we're working, I think we have to keep on working. I traced my hand along his brow and pushed his hair away from his eyes. His scars stood out sharply from his tanned skin. Um, that's kind of what I was thinking, said Cooper, trying to figure out which direction I was going, for his thoughts were something in opposition. He was thinking we should leapfrog right over courtship in our first sexual encounter and move in together. It might have had something to do with the stability I represented or the fact that he'd wanted me since he first saw me in the nightclub dancing with Shep. Or it may have had to do with our friendship, which had inexplicably evolved into loving me. Though he wasn't quite sure exactly when that had happened. He'd never loved anyone in this particular fashion before. He'd always gone for the drama, the challenge, the one who usually, strike that, always turned out to be a big mistake. I, in a certain way, was more dangerous, more enticing, because of my level head and kind heart, or so he thought at the time. There was the issue of my inscrutability, but still, unobtainable. That's what Mr. Booker was trying to tell him. If nothing else, Cooper never turned away from a challenge. I tilted my head back and gazed up at Cooper. All I wanted was a little, little while longer, like this, just a little. Cooper, kiss me again? Cooper cupped my face in his hands. So while we're working, I answered, I guess, I guess this should go into the vault. The what? Just until we're done working. The box. The one only you and I have the key for. I don't. Billy, you're making me crazy here. We don't want to start this in the middle of a movie. It, it has to be private, between the two of us, not with 150 people watching. Cooper bent and kissed me again. In effect, we had two completely contradictory conversations going at once. So this is it for a while, Chief? I agreed, and then Cooper rested his forehead against mine but you're mine, right? I'm yours. We had the best intentions as we parted and each of us drove off in our separate cars. I was flying high into the future. I saw another baby, another house, an office with partner's desks and a double bed, not a king, so we could lie touching all through the night. Cooper was contemplating something more immediate. There were four more months of shooting. He hadn't been celibate for four months since he was a teenager. He'd try, but if someone should express an interest, well, he'd make sure it was casual, 
brief and positively nobody who had any connection whatsoever to me. Was that dishonest of him? He struggled with this as he drove down Sunset and decided if it was lying to me, it was lying by omission, something he knew I had trouble with, but in truth he'd be protecting me from something I wouldn't understand. Yeah, that made it okay. Or would it? Maybe not. Besides, he could go four months. It was a matter of self-discipline. He could handle that. I had said something about seeing from a different perspective and not getting belligerent. Words to live by. I really was just what he needed. He thought. What he needed? Hmm. Only time would tell. He certainly wouldn't. A penguin paperback, the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, was lying on top of a pile of New Yorkers on the kitchen table when I got home. I flipped through the first pages and read, When I like people immensely, I never tell their names to anyone. It is like surrendering a part of them. I have grown to love secrecy. It seems to be the one thing that can make modern life mysterious or marvelous to us. The commonest thing is delightful, if one only hides it. I smiled. Soon I'd have time to read again. In only four months, we'd be in post-production, and half the tension of filmmaking would fall away. And after that, after that, I would reclaim my life. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.